Hello, everyone. Welcome to our listeners in the Big Apple from across the U.S. and around the world. I'm Jeff Goodman, and you're tuned into Rediscovering New York. I'm a real estate broker with Halstead Real Estate, but Rediscovering New York is not a program about real estate. It's a show that mostly is about New York City's neighborhoods and their extraordinary history. On most programs, like today, we focus on a particular neighborhood, exploring not only its history, but also its current energy, texture, and vibe, what makes that New York neighborhood special. And we do it through interviews with urban historians, preservationists, local business owners, nonprofit organizations, artists, and other neighborhood personalities. Sometimes we host a show about an interesting part or theme of the city that's not focused on one particular neighborhood. In the past, we've covered a history of U.S. presidents who came to or lived in New York. We once had a show on the history of the women's suffrage movement in Brooklyn. We've talked about Irish immigrants who came to New York, which we'll talk a little bit about tonight. Um, we had several special episodes during Stonewall 50, and we also explored the history of bicycles and cycling in New York. In the future, in the future we may journey to some of the city's parks or the subway, the age of a particular social or political movement, or musical genre, one kind of which I'm not going to mention, or unique <laughs> New York architectural phenomenon like Rockefeller Center. After our broadcast, each show is available on podcast. Uh, you can catch us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and other podcast services. Today, we're journeying to a very special neighborhood, one that I really love and that's changed dramatically in the past couple of decades, Hell's Kitchen, right here in Manhattan. Our first guest is a regular on Rediscovering New York, the amazing Joyce Gold. Joyce is a recognized expert and educator in New York history, and for over 40 years has been guiding New Yorkers and visitors alike to rave reviews through private walking tours as well as tours open to the public. Her website is JoyceGoldHistoryTours.com. Joyce has published two guidebooks, one of them, From Windmills to the World Trade Center, A Walking Guide Through the History of Lower Manhattan, and another, From Trout Stream to Bohemia, A Walking Guide Through the History of Greenwich Village. She has contributed entries to the Encyclopedia of New York City. Her article, Learning on Foot, Walking Tours of New York City, appeared in the Parents League 2007 Review. And one thing which I've been remiss in mentioning on Joyce's other appearances is that the New York Times has named her the Doyen of New York City Tour Guides. How could we go wrong with Joyce? Joyce Gold, welcome back to Rediscovering New York. Thank you, Jeff. Great to be here. Uh, some of our listeners know about your personal history, but we have, since our listenership has grown, we have listeners who don't. You're not originally from New York, are you? No, I'm from a small town in, Pen in eastern Pennsylvania, Hazleton, PA, is where I was born. But uh, I moved to New York with my family uh, for the ninth grade, so I've been here for a very long time. And how did you get into the business of illuminating and entertaining New Yorkers about our neighborhoods and our history? Well, it was very serendipitous. I didn't go to school to study Manhattan history before I gave tours. Uh, I was a computer analyst. I was in the computer field for many years, and I was a systems analyst at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York on, in the Wall Street area. One day I picked up a 100-year-old book about New York 100 years prior to that, and old New York was just the neighborhood I was working in. So it talked about the Indians on Broadway. I was on Broadway every day. 
and uh, it talked about streets that I knew very well but had no idea of the history. And in the 1970s, people I worked with didn't know about the history either. So suddenly, my walk to work was much more interesting. I could look at, for example, Broadway and imagine the Indians there, the Dutch there, the English there. And it was a wonderful mental exercise that just improved my daily life. And it hurt me that you know, seven and a half million New Yorkers at the time didn't know things that they passed constantly. So that's when I started, um, well, this is how I began. I decided to design a tour of Greenwich Village, and I invited friends to take it, and I made them pay me $3 each, I believe, at the Three time. Bucks. Three bucks. <laughs> Three bucks was my starting price. And then they gave me very helpful feedback. So um, for many years, for a number of years, I did it just on weekends, and I did just two tours, the financial district with the most layers of time, and Greenwich Village, which is an unbelievably fascinating part of town. And um, then it's just expanded into something very full-time and more fascinating than ever. And it's wonderful. Joyce, uh, uh, one program that I run is I host a series of historic walking tours for my real estate business. And Joyce is my tour de force, no pun intended. <laughs> when did you give your first tour of, of Hell's Kitchen? Oh, it must be about 20 years ago. It was a neighborhood I didn't know that well. You know, people generally know it as the district west of Times Square, because Times Square has more fame, I guess, outside of town. And it was fascinating for me to find out about it. And I love researching new neighborhoods because because of all the different histories, every different every neighborhood has a different identity today. So uh, it also is fun to keep up with the changes, and Hell's Kitchen has certainly changed quite a bit. Well, something about its identity, it, it, it's actually not fully uh, agreed upon even, even the boundaries of it. Uh, the northernmost boundary is generally considered to be 57th Street. Mm-hmm. But I've seen maps where the, uh, it's down 42nd Street and others where it's 34th Street and some where it, it's even the other side of the, of the rail yards at 31st Street. That's right. In the old days, there were wards, and you could be in the 7th Ward or the 8th Ward, Ward, and with each ward, the city deployed police and fire people and politicos. But now that we have names, names contract, names expand, and uh, it par- partly it's marketing because if a name has a positive overtone, and Hell's Kitchen's names are particularly interesting because it has two basically two basic names that are used at different times. I understand that if a real estate broker is trying to sell a condominium in Hell's Kitchen, they say uh, move to convenient Clinton. But if they're renting out an apartment, they're more likely to say move to colorful Hell's Kitchen. Well, full disclosure, I'm a real estate broker who <laughs> handles mostly sales, and uh, I still refer to the neighborhood as Hell's Kitchen. Well, it's, uh, it's more colorful and interesting, I think, than a new cleaned-up name. Yes. Well, speaking about its name, uh, you know, some people know uh, how, the, how the neighborhood got its name, but a lot of people don't. Mm-hmm. There are lots of neighborhoods that have acronyms like Soha, Nolita, Tribeca, neighborhoods that have names of people or old landmarks that are descriptive, like Fort Greene, Park Slope, Morningside Heights, Murray Hill, Kipps Bay. 
Mm-hmm. How did Hell's Kitchen come to get its name, and when was it coined? Well, there are different points of view about it, but this the following is what I think is most likely. The, the year was 1870. It was a sweltering summer, and two police were looking at a gang fight going on on 10th Avenue. One of the cops had been on that beat for many years. Another was new to the district, and the new police officer said to the old one, it's like hell here, and the old cop said, hell's cool, this here's hell's kitchen. Wow. Well, like so many neighborhoods on the island, what would become Hell's Kitchen uh, once upon a time was not only bucolic, but there were actually, I was surprised to hear that there were actually a bunch of streams running through and then emptying into the Hudson. Oh, yes. Well, the island of Manhattan is 13 miles long, and the Dutch settled at the southern tip. And during the Dutch 40 years, uh, the farmers were basically in East Harlem, but everybody else was at the southern tip. And so when the Dutch arrived, they found two dozen streams and four dozen ponds all over Manhattan, none of which are still visible. So there were a lot of streams in town. Mm. Maybe that's one of the reasons why the Dutch really didn't settle the mid part of the island for farmland because there was all that water around. Uh, yes, it was only at the end of, by the end of the 19th century that the population, which, it, which was uh, very high at that time, grew enough to cover the island. But only as more people came to town did the line of settlement move up. The grid for Manhattan was established uh, as far north as 155th Street in 1811. Of course, the streets weren't surveyed, and they, they cut, and then the... Manhattan, uh, Manhattan is uh, Lenape for the, the uh, I think, the island of many hills. So they had to, that's cut, right, that's they had right. to cut and fill in. Um, when were the local streets first surveyed in the neighborhood? Well, it just depends on the neighborhood. Uh, but certainly by the 1840s, there were a lot of people living there. Now, John Jacob Astor owned a lot of that property. He dies in 1848, the richest man in America. And he was said to have bought by the acre and sold by the lot. And he owned quite a bit of what is now Hell's Kitchen and some of Times Square as well in the early days. That's why the Astor Hotel was in Times Square. It was on Astor property. Uh, He tended to um, sublet vast property from places like Trinity Church downtown. But what he did up there was... uh, rent out leases on property, but if he had a lease on the property, his lease was longer than the leases he rented out. In other words, if his his tenants wanted to fix up their space, Astor was left with all of the improvements that they had put, and he kept making money that way. The Astor approach was very successful. By the end of the 19th century, his offspring owned over 2% of Manhattan. Uh, they hardly ever sold except to buy more land elsewhere at a good deal. And it was very interesting because uh, as the line of settlement moved north, Astor was pretty sure what would be the next area to be developed. Well, I live on 130th Street, and there's the famous Astor Row with the buildings that are really unique in New York. That's correct, done by the Astor family. The Astor family. I think he actually bought that property uh, several years before his death, but it it didn't get developed until the 1880s, I think. He was personally very unphilanthropic. 
Uh, he, th he thought, God made me rich, I should be rich. He made you poor, you should be poor. And it was only some of his offspring that, uh, that did phil philanthropy mm. of some sort or another. Including his grandson who went down on, on the Titanic, but that's another story. Um, Great-grandson. Great-grandson, sorry, sorry. Uh, uh, moving back to Hell's Kitchen, two important developments in New York's history centered in Hell's Kitchen, and they both happened nearly simultaneously. Uh, one was the growth of the docks and shipping along the waterfront in that part of the island, and the second was the large-scale immigration from Ireland, both mm -hmm. beginning in the late 1840s. How did they uh, both contribute to to the uh, the faster development of of the neighborhood? Well, I've read that some of the Irish moved to Hell's Kitchen because it was near 42nd Street, and um, in the 1840s, New York does a major, major project called damming, a, you know, we needed drinking water. The population was booming and the pumps, the water out of the pumps was getting increasingly brackish, meaning salt was infiltrating. And after a major accidental fire in 1835, the city decided to dam up a river north of the city, the Croton River, and bring it 42 miles into the city and the distributing reservoir was going to be at 42nd and 5th Avenue, which is today the site of the 42nd Street Library, and some of the Irish immigrants worked on that. So I think that's why they moved to an area just west of that big project. As a matter of fact, there was a lot of prejudice against them, and uh, one, one diarist feared that the Hibernian vagabonds would use the reservoir as a necessary. It wasn't a kind thing to say, but it certainly underlines that the Irish were working on the reservoir. Uh, there was a lot of anti-Irish feeling in New York for generations. No Irish need apply was abbreviated on many jobs for work. And I think there are two reasons for that. One is for over a century, uh, Manhattan was a British colony after being a Dutch colony for 40 years, and it was illegal to be a practicing Catholic for most of the British century. If a priest were found in town, that was ground for incarceration. And, uh, but also, 200,000 Irish barely escaping Ireland with their lives in the 1840s and 50s came they were a quarter of the population, and people often like to put down the poor instead of helping them, and so that's why there was so much anti-Irish fervor, I believe. Mm. And there's also some original New York Railroad history in Hell's Kitchen, the Hudson River Railroad. That was first uh, started yes. on the west side. Yes, well, uh, the Hudson River Railroad was one of three lines that Commodore Vanderbilt controlled uh, after the Civil War, and the uh, Hudson River Railroad was on down 9th Avenue along the Hudson River. Mm. All right, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Joyce Gold. Be back in a minute. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. 
Are you stuck in a rut? Negative thoughts, feelings, and conversations got you down? Hi, I'm Noreen Sumter, The Potentiator. Tune in every Tuesday at 9 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time and listen for new ideas on my show, Beyond Potential, Live Life Your Way, on talkradio.nyc. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. back to Rediscovering New York and my first guest, Joyce Gold of Joyce Gold History Tours. Joyce, tell us about your business and about the walking tours that you that you host for, for people it who is, love this city. Thank you, Jeff. It is so fascinating to me to explain the origins of different neighborhoods. And I personally give two-hour walking tours of 40 different parts of the city, primarily, but not only, in Manhattan. I love to design a tour. I love to see what interests, interests me most about a neighborhood. And I love to present it in a way that people can really take in, which is to say maybe stories, maybe anecdotes. And sometimes people 30 years later will say, you know, you gave my family and me a private tour, and I still remember this thing you said, and I feel very good about that. Well, I was, uh, uh, as pe- my, uh, many of my listeners know, I, I host uh, uh, monthly walking tours, and we were on a tour of Chinatown. I think there were 80 people, and I had the speaker <laughs> in the Bluetooth, and you were across Canal Street, and then someone said, that's Joyce Gold. <laughs> and so I'd say, she's across Canal Street, and she's already at, the, I think, the Church of Most Precious Blood, or I forgot the church that, that's, that, that's right there on Baxter. Um, and a great tour guide you are. Your website is JoyceGoldHistoryTours.com. That's right. Tours with an S. And it tells uh, two main things, aside from the courses I teach, not for credit, at New York University, the guidebooks. I think I still may have that up there. They're out of print but available on a couple of neighborhoods. And it mainly tells what public tours I'm doing. Most weekends of the year, you can just show up where it says at a different neighborhood. It's extremely reasonable, typically a two-hour tour. But mainly what I do are private tours and private events. For example, about every year and a half, I speak about New York history on the Queen Mary II and the Queen Elizabeth, the canard ships coming from England across the Atlantic for people coming into New York. And I do a lot of tours for celebrations, birthday tours, somebody's 80th birthday. I'm doing a tour for this Saturday morning. And uh, organizations and nonprofits and corporations. And I just love in my business that it's totally different every day. So even if I do the same neighborhood four times in one week and the financial district, 
is one that I often do that for. It can be one thing if it's for lawyers, or another thing it's for children, another thing it's for people who live there, or another version of it for people who just set foot in the United mm -hmm. States for the first time. And uh, so custom design is one of the things that enlivens it for me. I've heard you occasionally do a, a, a wayward tour for a real estate broker. Right? Once in a while, <laughs> I, they're lucky, I do. <laughs> uh, Joyce also has a great Instagram account, Joyce Gold History Tours. I highly recommend it. Uh, some great photographs of New York, both past and present. Um, moving back to Hell's Kitchen, like much of the city, which uh, was Manhattan at the time, uh, in, in the 1860s, there was a lot of change to the neighborhood after the Civil War. Yes, there was. Well, the docks were very important, and there were 200,000 Irish in town, and there were African Americans also working at the docks, and there were a lot of gangs that sort of stole at the piers as well. And so this was Hell's Kitchen. It became quite notorious. Mm. Well, of course, we can't talk about Hell's Kitchen um, uh, more than 100 years ago, and even as recently as the second half of the last century, without talking about the gangs and the history of the gangs. Mm -hmm. When did the gangs first start forming? Well, I would say pretty much after the, the, uh, after the Civil War in the 1870s, uh, probably even before that, because whenever people feel that they don't have enough uh, power and influence on their own, they tend to join others, whether it's a, an organization, an association, or a gang. So at the same time that the Five Points on the east side uh, was having gang activities, so was Hell's Kitchen. And there was a Hell's Kitchen gang. They had all kinds of different names and different kind of colorful, if slightly um, twisted, <laughs> members. Um, but uh, there were a few uh, different ones. Oni Madden was one of the gangsters that sort of branched off from the Hell's Kitchen gang. And he started something called the Hudson Dusters, which also uh, covered the waterfront of Greenwich Village. So not only were there gangs, there was the Goofers, pronounced Goofers, but spelled Gophers. That was a gang that hung out in basements, which is where they got their name. And uh, there was Happy Jack Mulraney, who uh, was one of the members, Goo Goo Knox, Stumpy Malarkey. <laughs> Sometimes on a tour, I think I have people decide their gang name if they would like to have something colorful. Stumpy there, Malarkey. <laughs> Stumpy Malarkey. Um, there was a woman's auxiliary with a fabulous name called the Battle Row Ladies Social and Athletic Club, otherwise called the Lady Goofers. They uh, rented themselves out to in labor disputes. Uh, management could pay them to break up strikes. Labor could pay them to protect the strikers. And uh, that's what it was, 1910. Wow, we live in boring times heyday. now <laughs> compared to <laughs> once upon a time. And there were some other colorful gangster names, too. There was, what, wasn't there some guy who had one lung? One lung current. Well, he was a very romantic fellow. Uh, one day, his girlfriend said she needed a new coat, and so he knew what to do. He went out on the street, clubbed the first police officer he found, took his coat off, and his sweetheart made it into a new outfit of military cut. This started a whole trend, a fashion trend, in Hell's Kitchen when all the mobsters were doing that, and the cops were going around in their shirt sleeves, and they were mad. So when the uh, railroad decided to stop all the pilfering on the docks, 
they uh, got those police and they just clubbed indiscriminately and people went to jail that way. Wow. Well, speaking of the docks and around this time, uh, there was a little bit of a, a sordid history associated with the neighborhood by the piers after the U.S. Uh, at least technically became dry during Prohibition in 1919. Mm-hmm. There were like fa- uh, some of those docks were used as, as, as uh, distilleries, illicit, you know. That's right. Uh, they were, and rum, rum runners up. Prohibition wasn't very popular in, uh, in New York City, and so it was flouted quite a bit. In fact, you could buy a list at a newsstand of where the speakeasies were, the illegal bars, and sometimes if you asked a cop, he would direct you to the nearest speakeasy. So that's how it worked. I always think prohibition was when they were building houses with three bathtubs, one for gin, one for scotch, and one for Saturday night. And our mayor, Jimmy Walker, the jazz age mayor of the 20s, certainly couldn't have cared less about uh, drinking. A lot of the ethnic groups, particularly the Irish and Germans, felt that it was directed against them because drinking was more part of their culture than it might have been of others. So they, they didn't care about it. They didn't care for it. What changes happened to Hell's Kitchen after the, war, after the Second War, after the containerization of freight, and also the opening of the Lincoln Tunnel, which, which did impact the neighborhood because of the Yes, the there were a number of big structures that uh, some call urban renewal. My grandmother called Irving removal because it really changed the place. The Lincoln Tunnel opens in 1937, the first tube of it, and then two tubes were added 10 and and so many years later, and that upset a lot of what had been going on. The Javits Center also was a big, New York City's convention center was a big upheaval. And um, so a lot of changes happened. Uh, The Port Authority bus terminal, the main bus terminal in the city, opened in 1953, and that was on a big block that had been these tenements. Well, gang rivalry continued and even raged into the 50s, 60s, and even the 70s. Um, What were the Cape Man murders? Well... Not to sound romantic about it because it was violent. (laughs) Right, right. uh, The Cape Man uh, was a man named, excuse me, (coughs) Salvador Agron, and he and another member of a Puerto Rican uh, gang uh, arrived at a park, now called the May Matthews Park, on 46th Street, to fight another Puerto Rican gang. But what happened was there was no other gang right there. What, who, the people, the young people who were in the park when he arrived, when they arrived, he and a, a pal, um, his pal had an umbrella with a very sharp point, and uh, Salvador Agron wore a big kind of Dracula cape with a red lining. He came to be known as the Cape Man. Uh, When they arrived, they found some young people who were just of the neighborhood and had just come back from a movie, and they were sitting there. But Agron was ready to kill somebody, and so with the sharp point of his associate's uh, umbrella, he kills two or, or, and wounds, I think, a third person. And so that was the Cape the Cape Man Massacre. Mm. And one of the most chilling things about it was he said he didn't care about it. And people were beginning to fear young people, even their own children some, to some extent at that period. 
there were very limited options for these young people, and so this is off, this is to some extent what some of them reverted to. Uh, Paul Simon made the Cape Man into a Broadway show. It was considered possibly the biggest flop on Broadway, and I understand one of the reasons that it lost a huge amount of money was because some of the people of Hell's Kitchen didn't want in any way the killing of teenagers of the neighborhood to be glorified in a Broadway play, mm. and they picketed it. How did the theater, speaking of Broadway, how did the theater district come to be on the edge, on the, on the eastern edge of Hell's Kitchen? Well, Times Square started at 1891. Oscar Hammerstein I, the grandfather of the, of the famous lyricist, built the first uh, theater on the other side of 42nd Street. The theater previously had been at Herald Square, which is just down Broadway at 34th Street. But that area was beginning to be commercial, so it moved up to 42nd Street and other theaters followed. And then the area, Broadway, uh, theater had always gone up north on Broadway for 200 years, but now everything north of it was filled in. That was why it didn't move north. Also, it's an incredible transportation hub uh, right at Times Square. You have the busiest subway hub, and uh, you have the buses coming into the Port Authority, mainly with commuters from New Jersey, and so that's where it stayed. Mm. We're going to talk about the um, uh, more recent gentrification of Hell's Kitchen with our second guest, who's a native. But I do want to ask you about the beginnings of it. Um, uh, Manhattan Plaza really started the, mm -hmm. the yes, Manhattan the Plaza, the neighborhood. which is a very large uh, entity, previously had been the pinball center of New York, Bally's major company today started in that area. But the 1970s were very hard times for New York, and uh, the, the city decided that if they built a large complex, it would have a couple of effects. It could get federal funds because they would allow in people who made very little money, but it would up the quality of the neighborhood because the people who could get into Manhattan Plaza were people who were connected to the theater business of the city. And it also uh, added to the, um, to the ability of the theater, both as a cultural as an economic part of New York. So they had subsidized housing in Manhattan Plaza for people in the theater professions. And when did it go up? It was in the 1970s. Okay, okay. Well, we're going to, there's a lot more to talk about, but our time for the first segment is up. And Joyce, you know I hate saying we can't talk anymore, especially with <laughs> the amazing wealth of, of knowledge and experience that you have. Uh, our first guest has been the amazing Joyce Gold of Joyce Gold History Tours. You can find out about her tours at JoyceGoldHistoryTours.com. And uh, check out Joyce's Instagram account, Joyce Gold History Tours. Joyce, thank you again so much for being on Rediscovering New York. It's always great to have you. Thank you, Jeff. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with our second guest in a moment. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, 
a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. The best designs for your life start at home. I'm David Thiergartner, interior designer and host of At Home. Listen live Tuesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern Time as we talk to the very best professionals about interior design and the design that's all around us right here on talkradio.nyc. Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. Support for Rediscovering New York comes from our sponsors. The Mark Myman team, mortgage strategist at Freedom Mortgage. For assistance in any kind of residential mortgage, Mark and his team can be reached at 646-330-4735. And support also comes from the law offices of Thomas Iaka, specializing in trusts, estate planning, and probate administration. Tom and his staff can be reached at 212-495-0317. Our show is about New York's neighborhoods and the myriad textures of our amazing city. Even though I work in real estate, one thing our show is not about is the business of real estate. But you don't have to be afraid. There's a great one you can listen to. It's called Good Morning New York, Real Estate with Vince Rocco, my friend and colleague at Halstead. Vince's show airs live on Tuesday mornings at 9 a.m. and can be heard at voiceamerica.com and on podcast. You can like us on Facebook, Rediscovering New York with Jeff Goodman, and follow me on Instagram. My Instagram handle is JeffGoodmanNYC. If you have comments or questions, or if you'd like to get on a mailing list, please email me, Jeff at RediscoveringNewYork.nyc. One other note before we get to our second and special guest, when I'm not hosting the show, I am a real estate agent in New York City, where I help my clients buy, sell, lease, and rent property. If you'd like to see how I can help you with your real estate needs, you can reach me and my team at 646-306-4761 or, of course, Jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. Our next guest is a very special experience of Hell's Kitchen in that he grew up here, and here I say because it's right down the road, and his present career also involves the promotion of Hell's Kitchen's residential and business life. The son of Italian immigrants from Piedmont, Vince Gardino grew up in Hell's Kitchen when it was known for the Irish gang, the Westies, which we're going to talk about. We didn't get to talk to Joyce about that too much. Vince saw the gritty neighborhood evolve to the gentrified version that it is today. He has spent his career at radio with senior sales managed positions at WABC when it played music, and he knew some of the famous disc jockeys that many of us New Yorkers have not just heard of but actually listened to for years. Vince was also at WOR, WNYC, and WQXR which, incidentally, I assiduously, I assiduously listened to beginning in my high school years, being an early lover of classical music and opera. Uh, currently, Vince is vice president and the chief financial officer for Strauss News, which publishes local neighborhood newspapers in Manhattan, including the West Side Spirit, which covers Hell's Kitchen. Although Vince no longer lives in Hell's Kitchen, he has moved only one neighborhood away to Lincoln Square, where he resides with his brother Robert. 
Uh, total radius of his Manhattan living experience has been one mile, one of those New York life stories. Vince and Robert are about to publish a book called Grave Trippers, History at Our Feet. You can imagine what that's about. Very special welcome to Vince Gardino. Vince, welcome to Rediscovering New York. Thank you. I'm especially pleased to have you because you're one of my rare guests who grew up in and whose, whose work still engages them with the neighborhood where you grew up, which is Hell's Kitchen. You're a first-generation American and New Yorker. Uh, your parents are from Piedmont, northern Italy. Did they tell you why they came to Hell's Kitchen to settle? Well, they, they both came for different reasons. My mom came here when she was 11 years old uh, because to join her mother and father who had emigrated here. Uh, and I remember she told me that when she got here, Herbert Hoover was president. And she became a seamstress, and uh, she actually made uh, dresses for the future uh, Duchess of Windsor when she was Wallace Simpson. My dad uh, came here for different reasons. He uh, fought in the uh, World War II uh, for the Italians, uh, fought in Ethiopia, wounded there. And after World War uh, II ended, um, as you know, Germany and Italy were the losers. So it was not a lot of laughs uh, trying to get going. So he, he emigrated here, and he met my mom, and uh, Robert and I came. So, As, um, as someone who was uh, a citizen of a country that had been at war with the United States, what is, was it especially difficult for your dad to emigrate to the States? Yes, very much so. He, uh, he, had, he had told me he never really – when my mother spoke, she spoke fluent English. Uh, but when my dad spoke, you, you know he came from Italy. It was very difficult for him to assimilate, and uh, uh, he had a hard time, uh, but uh, he, he persevered and uh, had a great life. Just to get some perspective, if you don't mind sharing it, when were you born, just to get an idea of when, when, when your life in Hell's Kitchen started and when you can, you know. Well, I was born in 1953 at a hospital that doesn't, uh, my namesake hospital, St. Vincent's. Uh, it's been gone, I think, about two or three years now. It's now an apartment complex, um, and we originally... Uh, up until I was three years old, lived on the east side uh, near where NYU is. Uh, and then it was all ripped down. And I remember we went to Italy that year. We went uh, for the summer. Uh, and when we came back, that's where we ended up in Hell's Kitchen on 48th Street between 8th and 9th Avenue. Mm -hmm. And my, my grandmother, my mom's mother, uh, lived on the fourth floor. And we lived on the sixth. And it was a very unique experience because it was way back when it was everyone knew each other in the building. Everyone knew each other in the building. It was kind of unique. And, and I remember Sundays, people would go to the roof and just stare out in the streets. And uh, it was a very, very tightly knit building. Uh, like the complete opposite of the building that I live in now, uh, where you know some people, but you don't know some people. It's uh, very transient. Uh, mm. and, that, and that's, you know, it's, uh, the only thing constant in life is change. Well, it, we Jewish folk call it Hamisha. I don't. Well, I forgot. The, I'm half Italian American. I forgot the word. The uh, but describe that close family neighborhood, neighborhood feeling. What was it like as a kid growing up in Hell's Kitchen? Describe very, the vibe of the neighborhood. When well, you it was up. very difficult. Um, we it was dominated by Irish, uh, the, the Irish community, and uh, uh, the, there were some Italians, not a lot, uh, some French. Uh, some Cubans, uh, but the, the, the dominant force was Irish, and uh, uh, it was very difficult for me uh, going to uh, grammar school at Sacred Heart on 51st Street because, uh, uh, and, and I tell people this all the time, they, and they, they think I'm crazy, but I, I, I literally got beat up every day, and uh, fights, and um, nearly had my thumb sliced off with, with a knife, and still have the scar today, and but um, it, it was very, very, you had used the word gritty before. 
and it was gritty. Uh, it was it was it was tough. I mean, it was just even even where we played a a, a, a park called Dewitt Clinton Park on on Eleventh Avenue between Eleventh and Twelfth on Fifty uh, First Street, Fifty Second Street rather. What was really really tough, and we we actually didn't play softball. We played hardball. And uh, when I grew up and, and, and got in business and I had softball teams, I, I had a hard time playing softball because I was used to playing hardball. <laughs> and playing hardball really defined how we lived in that neighborhood. It was, uh, it was, it was not easy. Hmm. You know, when, when you're a child growing up in a challenging environment or amidst not so nice things, um, you sometimes don't have the same perspective of someone looking in. You know, I remember seeing films of children playing in streets that were reduced to rubble during a war, but the kids just go about their business and playing, and for us looking, it's, oh, my God, that's, that's, a, that, that's a war zone. Um, can you recount any other experiences that you had that would have seemed out of the ordinary for most people who didn't grow up in a place like Hell's Kitchen? Well, as I said before, I mean, it was really... I don't want to say I took my life in my own hands when I went to school every day, but it was pretty close. I mean, one time I was attacked by a gang and knocked down um, on the floor. Was uh, it the Westies? or uh, I, I, it, was, uh. it was a bunch of kids from school. And I remember it was on 9th Avenue between 51st and 52nd Streets, and uh, a man from uh, a shoe store came out and rescued me, and they were pounding on me. So it was, uh, yeah, it was, it was, it was, it was not, like I said, not a lot of fun. Well, but we, we, we enjoyed ourselves because we, we played street games like Ring Alario, which I was very good at, I must admit, because they could never find me in my hiding places. Um, <laughs> and our big, our big, uh, our big diversion was, was with a Spalding Bull um, and, 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 and playing, playing really street games. Um, if we can get away with it, so. But um, it was it was unique. It was it was um, not what it was today. Mm. What it is today, excuse me. I know this is going to sound like a strange question. Um, you grew up in a place that was violent. Um, seeing gangs around you at any point was there anything? And I'm not a sociologist, but I, I just thought, given your background, I would ask you this. Was there anything alluring for you in any of the gangs that existed in Hell's Kitchen when you were growing up? And one essential element that provides not just the attraction but the glue that holds gangs together, unfortunately, is that people become part of a group who want them and values them in some way. Did you ever feel like you wanted I to? Had, to the, the gangs had absolutely no allure for me at all. As a matter of fact, uh, it was so bad that when I, when I, when I graduated from grammar school, uh, I was offered a four-year scholarship at Power Memorial Academy. Uh, and I turned it down because uh, I just at Power Memorial Academy was the sister high school to Sacred Heart, uh, and it was maybe about ten blocks away. But I, I, I turned it down, and my dad worked uh, near St. Agnes High School on the east side, and uh, we went there, and I went there, and uh, we paid full freight. Uh, but I, it had absolutely no allure at all. Uh, as a matter of fact, one of the statistics, which um, it, it's really gruesome, um, when I was a freshman in high school. I would say approximately 10 members of the graduating class of the eighth grade were dead already from drug overdoses. Wow. So, uh, as I said, that life had no allure at all. Mm. When did you decide to leave Hell's Kitchen? I decided to leave Hell's Kitchen in 1987 because my accountant told me I had to buy something to save taxes. <laughs> and so you did. I did. I, uh, I bought where I am now. But you didn't move very far away. You know, it, no, it, no. It's no. almost like you couldn't. Really, you, no, had no, to, no, the, uh, you had to leave, but you fact, couldn't leave. When the insurance, uh, not the when the real estate agent took me to the building, 
she was starting to describe it. And I said, you don't have to tell me about this building. I'm here every Sunday with my father and my brother visiting my two cousins, Aldo and Bruno. Mm. Uh, we used to spend Sunday afternoons with them. So I said, I, I already was familiar with the building. So it was, it, was, uh, it, was, it was very easy, and I'm glad I ended up where I did because it's a, not only a great building but a great, great neighborhood. Mm. It's everything at your, at your doorstep. But, of course, it wasn't always that. This is not the no, program not at Lincoln no. Square. But uh, mm-hmm. uh, for those uh, listeners who may have seen the, the movie West Side Story, I mean, Vince grew up in Hell's Kitchen, which is where West Side Story takes place, and now lives uh, around some of the streets where some of those scenes were actually shot when they were uh, uh, cleared out for urban renewal. But before they tore down the buildings, they actually had some, they, they used it like a soundstage. And, boy, are there some great dancing scenes in that movie. Um, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to talk to Vince uh, more about the current neighborhood, but also about his career and about his upcoming book. Stay tuned. You are listening to the Talking Alternative Network. I'm the aptly named host of Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio, big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. Fundraising, board relations, social media, my guests and I cover everything that small and mid-sized shops struggle with. If you have big dreams and a small budget, you have a home at Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio. Fridays, 1 to 2 Eastern at TalkingAlternative.com. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. We're back to Rediscovering New York and our second guest, Vince Gardino. Um, I want to ask Vince about his career and a little bit more about the present Hell's Kitchen, but first I want to find out about the book that you and your brother are writing, Grave Trippers, History at Our Feet. Well, it's uh, due out in uh, September by Camino Press, and what we decided to do, is we have a love of history, and we love uh, going to see where famous people are buried, and we decided to write a book uh, and make it fun. Uh, we're not ghouls. We're not. Uh, it's not macabre. But uh, there's a lot of fun stories uh, in cemeteries in the East Coast. We we cover a range from Mount Auburn in Boston, Laurel Hill in Philadelphia, uh, West Point in New York, Arlington in Washington D.C., Kensico, uh, Woodlawn, um, um, Greenwood in, in Brooklyn. But we what we do is we we selected about four or five uh, people uh, in each cemetery. Uh, some of them are well known. Some of them aren't. Uh, but we told 
very, very, in, we, what we think are interesting stories that people don't know. For example, Edwin Booth, who was a noted actor and the, uh, and the brother of the infamous uh, John Wilkes Booth, actually saved the life of Abraham Lincoln's son, Robert Todd Lincoln. Uh, he was in danger of falling between two railroad cars, and he all of a sudden he grabbed them by the nape of the neck and he pulled them up. Mm. So uh, that that's an interesting. We, we call it a fun fact. And the other the other thing we have in the book, uh, which I think is really important, particularly if you're going to get into this, is explicit directions to the graves. Because if you ever go to a cemetery and they give you a map, you always get lost. And I've had people say, "Oh, isn't it fun getting lost in a cemetery and finding graves?" No, it's not. I mean, you need to know exactly where to go. Especially so that's what our book is all about. We try to make it fun, and we try to make it about history and introduce people to this hobby that we have. And it's coming out this fall. September, yes. Uh, let's talk about your career. When did you start working in media-related businesses? Right out of college. I was a history major at St. Francis, and I, I got into the radio rep business. I worked at Metro Media Radio for a while, and then I, I got to work at uh, my first big radio station was WABC when it was music radio, and it was, uh, I, I can't tell you what a thrill it was. I remember Harry Harrison uh, leaving a note for me on my desk saying, I ran your A&P spots correctly. Uh, <laughs> I, I was just, it was just very, very neat. And then I, I went to the ABC radio network where I started two radio networks from scratch, uh, worked with uh, Dr. Laura Schlesinger, Jacqueline Smith, uh, and then I went to WOR where I spent about nine years and worked with uh, John Gambling, Joan Hamburg, uh, Bernard Meltzer, and then I segued over to uh, New York Public Radio, uh, and it was there um, at WNYC and was also there when we acquired WQXR Radio from oh, the wow. New York Times. Wow, wow. So I can, I can mention a whole slew of names of people that you've worked with that I've, I've listened to over, over the decades. When did you start working with Strauss Media? I started working for Strauss Media in uh, April of 2014. Uh, it's a very interesting story. Uh, a friend of mine who was general manager of WQXR uh, had told me that um, uh, Jeannie Strauss uh, had uh, bought these, uh, these newspapers in Manhattan and was looking for help with salespeople. And, uh, One of I, which is the West Side Spirit. Right, for correct, Hellsman, Hellsman. yeah, and yeah. Uh, no, no pun intended. I knew where the bodies were buried, uh, <laughs> but uh, um, could you give her a call? And uh, her, her, her brother called me, Eric Strauss, and um, he said, can you help her? I said, sure. I said, have her give me a call. I'd be more than happy to go over you know, people that she can talk to and so about two weeks went by, and I was working out one day at the New York Athletic Club, and I said, you know, she never called me. So I called uh, Eric up when I got back to the office, uh, and uh, I, I said, hey, you know, if your sister still wants to know about where to go and find, find good people, uh, Eric called me. Uh, so, but she did the next day. She had, she had the wrong number. So uh, we, we, we talked, we met, and uh, the rest is history. <laughs> Very happy that I went there. Uh, because it's uh, really uh, my, I, I guess I hope I'm pronouncing the word correctly, milieu, uh, because uh, it's all about Manhattan. Mm -hmm. We've got the West Side Spirit, Our Town on the East Side, Our Town Downtown, which is 14th Street to Battery Park City, and the Chelsea News. How does it feel now to be promoting life and to be promoting businesses in the neighborhood that you grew up in, but uh, which had been a very different experience? It's a lot of fun. It's uh, It's you're really trying to help people out uh, because it's all about uh, awareness. And the one thing about Strauss Publications, not only in the city, Jeannie has uh, publications in, 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 in Orange County and in Jersey and Pennsylvania. It's all about neighborhood news. It's news that no one else writes about. It's about, the, it's about 
things that end up sticking on a refrigerator door. It's news about the hood. You're not going to find it in any in the New York Times, the Daily News, the Post, uh, AM New York, or Metro New York. Let's talk about the Hell's Kitchen of, of today, Vince. Um, describe the vibe of the neighborhood. How has it changed from when you were growing up there? Well, the vibe of the neighborhood is, is, is young. Uh, when, when I was growing up, it was, was much older. Um, a 9th Avenue, where my dad and I used to shop on Saturday mornings, was really, uh, it was like almost the entire Italian village had emigrated over there, and we would bump into all the people in the village. Was that in the 40s or the 30s? I remember that the grocery. Uh, well, uh, we started out at 48th Street and worked our way up to 38th Street. It was a series of green grocers. Uh, so about that 10-block radius was, I, I said, you, you bump into people in the village. Well, today it's more millennials um, uh, and, and, and really white-collar folks. Uh, but it still re- retains a little bit of the sense of Hell, Hell's Kitchen mm. because it's, it's, it's got an incredible, I think, array of restaurants, um, it, it, which did not exist when I grew up. There, there were hardly any restaurants at all. So there's a dynamic element, I think, uh, of, the, uh, of the neighborhood in, 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 in 2019 that did not exist in, let's just say, 1967 when I graduated uh, grammar school. Well, for the, uh, many of our listeners will not know this. Some will, though. There was uh, actually a, a grocery store and a restaurant next door. There were brothers who owned each of them. They didn't talk for more than 40 years because they had a dispute Manganaro about Manganaro Brothers. Manganaro oh, Brothers. Oh, yeah. yes. That, what, a, what, a, what, a, what a few that was. I couldn't figure that out. Who invented the six-foot sandwich? Yeah, yeah, right, right, exactly. Well, they had two <laughs> restaurants uh, right, right next door to each other, but they never talked to each other. No. <laughs> I, I, I think they're long gone now. I hadn't, last time I went to the no, original... No, it's still open. The Six Foot Hero uh, uh, store is still open, but the other store closed. It was a restaurant. It closed maybe about 10 years ago. Hmm. But happily, Robert, my brother, and I still talk. Oh. That's, why we, <laughs> that's why Robert and I wrote the book. Wonderful. Well, at least some siblings get along. Um, are there things that excite you now about Hell's Kitchen which didn't exist when you were growing up? Yes. As I said, uh, the, the restaurant scene is, is terrific. Um, it's, it's very vibrant. I'm a foodie, by the way, in case you haven't figured it out. Um, and, and there's always some place to go there. Um, also, there's a lot of theaters that have opened up, off-Broadway theaters, particularly on 42nd Street. Um, so I, I, I think it's really neat. Even though I live in the Lincoln Center area, it's, it's, still, it's still a part of me and will always be. A little side question here, a little trick question. Is there anything that you don't like about the way that Hell's Kitchen has changed? That's a good question. I ask good uh, questions. Yes, I have to. Yes, you do. <laughs> yeah. Is there anything I don't like about it? Um, I think it's lost the mom and pop feel. Um, and I can I point to a store that we loved, a uh, pastry shop called Pozzo Pastry Shop. It was on 9th Avenue between uh, 48th and 47th Street. My dad knew the owner. They came from near our village in Italy, and they made the absolute best Zabayone cake. Uh, uh, I mean, it, just to die for. Yeah. And they're been, they've been gone about 10 years, but it, slowly but surely, all these mom and pop stores um, that everyone, it's almost like our building where everybody knew each other, uh, they've gone away. And that's what I miss about it. Um, it, it, it it's very commercialized, um, and it's not uh, where you know everybody. So there you go. Well, someone who's in a business promoting businesses and communities around in different parts of the island. Is there, uh, is there anything that you think Hell's Kitchen has that makes it unique compared to the other neighborhoods that you cover? And yes, variety. It's got, it's, got, it's, got, it's got everything you need there. Uh, it's almost sort of like where I, where I live. You walk out the door and you've got everything at your doorstep. 
you got butchers, you got shops, you got, again, I keep going back to restaurants. Um, bar, there's, a, there's a barber shop that's still there, uh, the Three Aces. Uh, that's the only thing that I know that's still there from when I grew up. It's on Ninth Avenue between uh, 46th and uh, 45th Streets. Uh, Do you have your hair cut there? No. No. <laughs> <laughs> Mm. My, my late wife, uh, Ginny, uh, sent me to her Japanese barber. <laughs> Is there anything that surprises you about the Hell's Kitchen of today? Another trick. Another, another, good tri- question. another uh, trick question. Uh, no, not, not really. No, I can't uh, say anything that surprises me. No. Uh, uh, last question I'm going to ask you. If, you. if you had a crystal ball, how do you use a bad Hell's Kitchen? How do you see the neighborhood continuing to evolve? I think it's going to get slicker if uh, I, I, may, I may use that term, um, right? It, because as I said, it was mom and pop when I grew up and it's gotten very commercialized. I think it's getting to be, gonna be very, very slick. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with that, by the way. I think that's kind of cool. But um, I, I think you know, the way it's evolving now, um, it, it'll be, and I think about five or six years, it'll be a very slick place. Oh, great. Well, Vince Gardino, thank you so much for showing, uh, being with us on Rediscovering New York and our journey to Hell's Kitchen. Uh, Vince is the vice president of Strauss Media, which publishes The West Side Spirit uh, in Hell's Kitchen. And he and his brother Robert are about to publish a book called Grave Tripping, or Grave Trippers, sorry, History at Our Feet. Visit our Facebook page, Grave Trippers. (laughs) Excellent. We will do that. Uh, if you have comments or questions about the show, or if you'd like to get on our mailing list, please email me, jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. You can like us on our Facebook page, and also follow me on Instagram, jeffgoodmannyc. Once again, I'd like to thank our sponsors, the Mark Myman team at Freedom Mortgage and the law offices of Thomas Siakam. And don't forget, when I'm not hosting the show, I am a real estate agent at Halstead. And whether you're selling, buying, leasing, or renting, my team and I provide our clients with the best service in real estate in New York with the best service and expertise in New York City real estate. Running out of time, I want to make sure I end on time. Uh, You can reach me at 646-306-4761. Our producer is Ralph Storier. Our engineer is Sam Leibowitz. Our special consultant is David Griffin of Landmark Branding. And most important, stay tuned at 8 p.m. on her new time right here on Talk Radio Dead NYC for Beyond Potential, Live Life Your Way with my friend Noreen Sumter. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. Are you stuck in a rut? Negative thoughts, feelings, and conversations got you down? Hi, I'm Noreen Sumter, the Potentiator. Tune in every Tuesday at 9 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time and listen for new ideas on my show, Beyond Potential, Live Life Your Way, on talkradio.nyc. I'm the aptly named host of Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio, big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. Fundraising, board relations, social media, my guests and I cover everything that small and mid-sized shops struggle with. If you have big dreams and a small budget, you have a home at Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio. Fridays, 1 to 2 Eastern at TalkingAlternative.com. Hey, all you crazy listeners. 
Looking to boost your business? Why not advertise on Talking Alternative with very reasonable rates? Interested? Simply email at info at talkingalternative.com. The best designs for your life start at home. I'm David Thiergartner, interior designer and host of At Home. Listen live Tuesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern Time as we talk to the very best professionals about interior design and the design that's all around us right here on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network at www.talkingalternative.com. Now, broadcasting 24 hours a day. Talking Alternative. Do you love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. 